0: Pacifica Radio. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Weiner, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Trump and TV. We all know Trump got famous on TV with The Apprentice. But how many of us have ever watched The Apprentice? Reality TV was a key force in making Trump president Tom Carson, will explain. Also, Ilhan Omar has endorsed Bernie for president, But how does she deal with Trump's vicious attacks? David Perry has spent the last few months with her in her Minneapolis district. He says he's never seen a politician talk as little about themselves as she does in her town halls. But first, the Koch brothers didn't want Donald Trump to be president. Trump Watch starts right now. The Koch brothers, Charles and David, spent hundreds of millions supporting right-wing Republicans who gave tax breaks to their gigantic oil and gas businesses, along with cuts in regulations. They're probably the most important funders of the opponents of action to reduce climate change. David died last month, but the evil he did will live on probably for generations, and Charles continues to run the operations. How did the Koch brothers transform an obscure oil company based in Wichita into a $110 billion colossus? For that story, we turn to Christopher Leonard. He's written for the Washington Post and Bloomberg Business Week, and he's the author of the new bestseller, Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. Chris Leonard, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, before we talk about the politics of the Koch brothers, we should talk about how they got so rich, which is really the subject of your book. Their current wealth is 120 billion, something like that. Their fortune is bigger than Bill Gates's, bigger than Jeff Bezos. But the Kochs didn't invent a new product or revolutionize our lives like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. So the big question is, how did they do it? Let's go back to the beginning. We know how Donald Trump got rich. His father, Fred, gave him money. When he was three years old, Donald Trump was getting $200,000 a year in today's dollars from his father's empire. Donald Trump was a millionaire by age eight. Is that the way it worked for the Koch's father, who was also named Fred?
1: Well, here, here's the similarity. The similarity is a, a massive inheritance. Uh, David and Charles Koch, were, they were two of four sons born in Wichita, Kansas. And even by the time they were born, their father, Fred, was a wealthy industrialist. He owned Oil refi- He owned a big stake in an oil refinery and ranches and, and engineering companies that serviced oil refineries. So they definitely inherited a very large company, but there's no doubt that since 1967, when Charles Koch took over the company, they have expanded it dramatically. It ha- It has exploded. And to answer your question of how they got so rich, I really think there are two elements to it. One is... This brilliant, long-term strategic thinking that we've seen displayed by Charles Koch, who's really been the driving force behind this corporate empire. And then the second half of the equation is the kinds of businesses that they have focused on all these decades, like oil refining being a key example There are lots of deep political and economic things going on in the oil refining industry that make it so profitable. It's not just a story of, you know, innovation and successful capitalism. I mean, this is a a pretty anti-competitive business that everybody relies on that delivers enormous profits. And, And so that's at the heart of this story, too. But I think the quick headline answer is Charles Koch and his brother David took over this company in 1967. They were incredibly patient in how they managed it, how they reinvested their profits, and they did build one of the largest fortunes in the United States doing it.
0: Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. You say the key to the Koch's rise to power, if there is a single one, was Charles buying control of the Pine Bend Refinery south of St. Paul in 1969. I don't think anybody else in 1969 thought that Pine Bend would be the key to becoming a billionaire. Why did Charles want to own it?
1: So this can't, the the importance of the Pine Bend refinery cannot be overstated. Yes, Charles Koch, it was one of his first moves as CEO to purchase it in 1969. And I, I think, you know, the guy has really great business sense, and and he knows an opportunity when he sees it, but I think critically, what sets Coke apart is that they think on this horizon of years instead of quarterly earnings. So he saw this asset, and he could see the profits that it would it would deliver over the next two, five, ten years, and that's why he bought it. But I think the performance of Pine Bend even outstripped anything Charles Koch could have envisioned at the time. And it really tells an important story, not just about America's energy system, but about our our political economy, if you will. And and here's the headline about why this one oil refinery. It was described to me as the cash cow, the crown jewel. It, It has delivered billions in profits over decades. And the reasons are really fascinating. The Pine Bend refinery which is kind of obscurely hidden up there in, in suburban St. Paul, it refines oil from the tar sands area of Canada. This is high sulfur, quote-unquote dirty crude oil that not many refineries can process because of its chemical composition. So because not many people can process it, There are just big supplies of this oil piling up up there at the border in Canada. Not many people can buy it. So Coke, as one of the few purchasers, gets this oil really cheap. It refines it, and then it turns around and sells gasoline from that oil into these markets in the upper Midwest. You know, Chicago, Minneapolis, areas like that where gasoline prices are extremely high because there aren't that many refineries up there in that region. So Coke is buying extremely cheap, and it's selling really high. But the big question is, why is that sort of bottleneck or that dysfunction in the energy economy allowed to continue? We haven't built a new oil refinery in this country since 1977. It's a really uncompetitive sector of our economy. Everybody relies on gasoline to get to work, so it's essentially an energy monopoly. But we haven't built a new oil refinery, strangely enough, in large part because of the Clean Air Act regulations that have created this huge regulatory hurdle to get into the business, and that the existing oil refineries have truly exploited and manipulated the clean air laws to keep out any new competitors. So you see how Coke sits on top of these assets that are tremendously profitable and sort of shielded from competition.
0: So Pine Bend had great economic advantages. It also had one economic obstacle to tremendous profits. The Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, the OCAW, had organized the Pine Bend refinery workers. That was a a good union. It was a time when unions were strong. Minnesota was a union state. What happened to the OCAW in the contract negotiations of
1: 1973? So this is one of the most important stories in the book, I think. You know, this is right when Charles Koch buys the refinery. He has big plans and big visions, but as you stated there's a very strong, almost militant labor union standing in his way, in the, in the sense that, you know, you go back to the 1970s, labor unions had a lot of power in this country. They didn't just bargain for higher wages and higher retirement benefits, but they bargained for what we would call workplace rules, which were safety rules, so that A certain employee at the refinery would only work on one machine, and that employee would get to know that machine really well, and if it broke, another employee would come fix it. Now that, that introduces inefficiencies into the business, and it's frustrating for owners because you've got these kind of shackles on what you can do. Charles Koch vehemently opposed these kinds of limitations. Uh, on on management control of facilities. He has opposed labor unions from the beginning, and he hired a guy named Bernard Paulson to come into the refinery, and I wouldn't even say take a hard line on contract negotiations. He told the union, Bernard Paulson told me, that it was basically take it or leave it. Charles Koch has got a new way of doing things. You're either on board or you're not. And what resulted was a nine-month-long strike Bitter, bitter dispute. Coke was bringing in what was what were called scab workers. It was bringing in workers via helicopter. They lived in bunker-like conditions. There was industrial sabotage, but Charles Koch never wavered in this fight. And in essence, Charles Koch broke the OCAW. After nine months, they came back to the table. They signed a contract, and I say they were essentially tamed from that point forward.
0: Well, today, Pine Bend, still going strong, it's run by something called Flint Hills Resources, which is, I guess, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. But if you look up the Flint Hills website, uh, it says their purpose is safeguarding the environment. It's all about ducks and forests. It's all about the Pine Bend Bluffs' natural area known for its, I quote, its stunning views of the Upper Mississippi River Basin and its critical role in providing wildlife habitat. And the refinery also sponsors the Flint Hills Family Festival in St. Paul. They describe it as an annual multi-day event featuring performances, free activities, art making, where families, I continue to quote, are swept away on adventures that spark imagination and exploration, close quote. That doesn't seem to be the way that Charles Koch got control of the refinery in Pine Bend.
1: You know, there's always more to the story. And, And you're right. I mean, taking control of that refinery was a bitter bitter fight. I mean, it was a hard fight and workers lost a lot of power. Let's fast forward to the year 1996, which actually plays a big role in why this facility is called Flint Hills Resources instead of coke refining. And, you know, at that time, there was a huge pollution problem at this refinery. Yeah. The mach- yeah, the machinery was producing toxic ammonia levels that were way outside of the permit levels and coke managers instead of shutting down the refinery to fix the problem, they chose to flush this ammonia-laden water out into the nearby wetlands and illegally pollute the wetlands. And, you know, the book tells the story of this one woman at the refinery who tried to get them to stop. She was an environmental engineer who tried to stand up to her bosses and get them to stop, and she was really marginalized and steamrolled. And I think that the reason for that... It's it's this corporate culture of everybody moving in lockstep. You know, the old labor unions that were kind of broken created a counterbalance. But once that was wiped away, you know, the, the sort of voices who got up and, and tried to speak against the authority, they're, they're not listened to as much. And anyway, you know, the federal authorities and the state authorities discovered this criminal wrongdoing at Pine Bend, and there was a huge record-breaking fine that was imposed on coke for that and it was after that very high profile criminal action that they changed the name to flint hill's resources and and kind of moved past the bad baggage that was locally attached to that word you know coke refining
0: the real secret of the coke brothers empire uh, is not just gaining control of these resources you open your book with a scene In 1981, when four people from Morgan Stanley come to Wichita to propose to take the family uh, holdings public, Uh, tell us that story.
1: This is important. There's a reason I opened the book with this. In 1981, these four Wall Street bankers fly to Wichita, and they've got a proposition for Charles Koch. Take your company public, which, is common, which was common wisdom at the time. When you take the company public, you get access to all this money on Wall Street. And the bankers told Charles Koch if he, if he took the company public, he would get a $23 million bonus that night just by going public. I wow. think adjusted for inflation, it would be like $60 million today. He turns them down flat. The memo they write back to their bosses says he does not want this cash the reasons are so interesting. He knew at the time that if he went public, he would be answerable to outside shareholders. So first of all, as we've established, he doesn't like share and control. But second of all, it would have kind of enslaved Koch's management to the short term thinking of, you know, your your profit statements over the next quarter. What's going to happen over the next three months? And he wanted to untether himself and and be able to think on a much longer-term horizon, which has really benefited the company. But there's such a fascinating little quote in the memo the bankers wrote after that, which is he told them, if we go public, outsiders are going to figure out how much money our commodities traders are making, and the traders are worried that people will quit doing business with us if they realize how rich we're getting off of these trades. And I, I think that's so illuminating. We know that Coke. Is extremely secretive. And the secrecy is strategic. This company wins by knowing more about the world than its competitors. And it doesn't want outsiders to know what it knows or to know what it's about to do. And and I think that that helps describe why the company is so private and so secretive.
0: Well, now let's talk about politics. Uh, Were the Koch brothers always big donors to Republicans?
1: The short answer to that is no. I'm thinking of a letter Charles Koch wrote in the 70s to the head of the Libertarian Party where he just expressed disgust. Charles Koch has been disgusted with Republicans since the 70s. He sees them as just as corrupt as Democrats in the sense that they support government intervention in markets. Charles Koch, to back up a little bit, is really a, a hardcore ideologue who believes that government intervention in markets can only create more harm than good. He he subscribes to these libertarian thinkers like von Mises and Hayek and people like that. So he's tried to stay away from Republican politics, but it was really around the 1990s and then the 2000s that Koch realizes they've got to have a place at the table in Washington. They've got to be involved. They're just too big to basically hide in Wichita. And so their strategy has been to transform the Republican Party. As Charles Koch put it at one of his seminars in the early 2000s, you know, the Democrats are a lost cause in their view. But they can push Republicans to embrace this libertarian, anti-government point of view. And that's what the Koch network has been patiently doing for decades, It's trying to get Republicans to embrace this libertarian, anti-government view.
0: The striking thing to me is that even though the Koch brothers and the network they founded have donated hundreds of millions to Republicans over the last decade or two, they haven't been as successful as you might think. They did everything they could to keep Obama from being elected and then reelected, but of course they failed at that, and they opposed Trump in the Republican primaries in 2016. They really did not want Trump to be president, and they failed at that. So Despite all these hundreds of millions, they haven't really been as successful in getting their candidates into the White House. I wonder if you have any comment on that.
1: I totally do. And it's such a great point. And I think about this a lot. I mean, first of all, nobody's invincible. And, you know, part three of this book is called Goliath. Well, you know, Goliath got beaten. And and I don't want to portray the Kochs as these all-seeing geniuses who are invincible by any stretch of the imagination. But I do want to say two key things. You know, Koch's political activities are torn straight from the playbook of how they trade commodities. That's why you see all these shell companies and all these efforts to hide Koch's fingerprints. But for that reason, look the white house really matters and coke, the Koch network knows that but they know that there's a lot of other stuff that matters and their real expertise their real emphasis is on the machinery of government that is not just a high-profile every four-year white house election coke has built a map of american political power that includes the state legislatures the court system a very particular uh, emphasis on the United States Congress, and then, of course, the administrative agencies like EPA. Koch is engaged every day on sort of the subtextual level, on, on the subterranean level, of affecting policy there. And so when I see stuff like, you know, they lose the White House, they they backed out of the White House race when Trump won, I think it obscures the fact that they're not as focused on the White House. They're focused on the everyday machinery of government. I think that's very true, but even with that in mind, well, the second thing I wanted to say is that you're, you're totally right. These are not complete masterminds and the, the Trump, the, the Koch network played a huge role in facilitating the Tea Party. They didn't invent the Tea Party, they didn't create the Tea Party, but they rode the Tea Party wave. What Trump showed is that the Koch network was misreading these voters. The Tea Party was not a libertarian movement. They, the Tea Party wasn't reading von Mises and Hayek like Koch is. Donald Trump came in and spoke directly to those voters about issues like immigration and uh, racial grievance and a rigged economy and even anti-billionaire stuff. And and Trump took away those voters.
0: Well, the big thing, of course, that the Koch operation was focused on, as you say, it was not immigration. uh, It was not uh, Muslims in the United States. It was a carbon tax. And there is an important history to the politics of the carbon tax told in your book, Coke Land.
1: And there's one reason I told this story, and that's because it was the front burner, life or death, lobbying issue for Coke Industries for decades. It is not coincidental, that Coke ramps up spending by a massive amount in 2008 because this is the time when true bipartisan support for regulating greenhouse gas emissions becomes a reality. It's hard to remember now, but back in 2009, the United States House of Representatives passed a massive bill that was a Republican idea, a Republican idea called cap and trade, to put a price. On, on greenhouse gas pollution because markets need prices to work and the cost of greenhouse gas emissions is going to be paid by everybody over decades. So this, this bill was trying to you know, put a price on putting that carbon into the sky at this time. And this was an existential threat to Koch's fossil fuels business, which is still a huge part of their portfolio. And so that's why they activated to derail the cap-and-trade bill successfully, I have I should add. And, and they continue to lobby against any efforts, not just to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but to stimulate competition to fossil fuels in the form of solar and, and wind power. They're, they're very active in that space right now.
0: The Washington Post reported recently that the Kochs are not going to back Trump in 2020 they will stay out of the presidential race. And after that story appeared, Trump tweeted that the Koch network was a quote total joke and quote highly overrated. Uh, how big are the differences between the Kochs and Trump at this point?
1: So the the differences are fascinating. There are here's this here's the difference. Here's the significant difference. The Koch Network wants a libertarian free market utopia, no government. Donald Trump represents a so called America First vision. He is willing to intervene in markets in ways that he perceives will benefit the people who elected him. He's willing to use tariffs. He's willing to trade up trade deals. He's talked about punishing corporations that offshore jobs. All of that stuff is totally anathema to the Koch brothers, well, and to Charles Koch, rather, I should say, now I apologize, and to the Koch network. Now, the significant area of agreement is that Trump and Koch want to absolutely dismantle the what's called the administrative state, the regulatory agencies like EPA, OSHA, groups like that. Donald Trump has picked up the anti-global warming rhetoric that Koch have spent millions to kind of bake into the Republican intellect. Uh, Trump has picked up on that. So that's why he's talking about wind power being a hoax. And, you know, we got to drill more oil and climate change is a hoax. They are on the same page with that. So it's a tense relationship. At the end of the day, the Koch people would be more than happy to see Donald Trump leave the stage. But in the meantime, you know, I show in my book they have aggressively helped Donald Trump attack the EPA. They transformed Trump's tax reform plan into a huge tax cut bill. So they're very active on the ground level to get policy wins out of the Trump administration.
0: Last question. You've said the key to their financial success was keeping their company private. Keeping it private has another great advantage. They don't have to file public information so they can basically operate in secret. How did you uncover all these facts about Coke Industries when they keep everything secret?
1: Well, first of all, it took a long time. It took years. And, you know, the first stage is I flew to Wichita several times. I flew to Atlanta, Portland, Oregon, Oklahoma City, Enid, Oklahoma, where they've got a fertilizer plant. You spend your nights and weekends knocking on doors, getting people to open up to you and getting people to talk. And then interestingly enough, Coke doesn't file quarterly reports, but they bump up against transparency in other ways. You know, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is this obscure little group that collects pipeline data on coke. I found government investigations, litigation in the courts with depositions, a U.S. Senate investigation. Just with enough time, you can kind of unearth these documents that at least capture part of the Coke picture. And, you know, then you've got a, I had a whistleblower inside the company who gave me 10 years of internal safety documents that show that workplace injuries were rising at Georgia Pacific. So it's really just having the time to go back and to go back and to go back to people and then to unearth the points where Coke's operations are documented in black and white.
0: Christopher Leonard, he wrote the book, Coke Land. The secret history of Coke Industries and corporate power in America. It's totally fascinating and totally important. Thank you, Chris.
1: Thanks for the time. I appreciate it.
0: I'm John Weiner, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch Podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. We all know Trump got famous on TV with The Apprentice, but how many of us ever watched The Apprentice? Nobody I know. But reality TV was a key force in making Trump president. For that story, we turn to Tom Carson. He's a longtime writer on pop culture and politics. He won two National Magazine Awards during his time as Esquire's screen columnist. He's also been a staff writer at the Village Voice and the LA Weekly, and he's written for the Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and the American Prospect. Now he writes for Book Forum. He's also the author of the novels Gilligan's Wake and Daisy Buchanan's Daughter. We reached him today in Louisville. Tom Carson, welcome to the program.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. Well, don't
0: all politicians create images for themselves on TV? Trump is exceptionally good at it, but is he really different?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, politicians, some of them are good on TV, some of them are bad on TV, but it's just a necessary part of the job not their main interest. Trump is really a pure creature of TV. The guy who plays the role of Donald Trump on TV and on God knows on Twitter is the only Donald Trump there is. One reason that political writers had such a hard time getting a handle on him is that, well, I, I think it's something you and I both know because we've had one foot in each world, but most political journalists know nothing about popular culture and they think it's really irrelevant to Understanding how the country works or how politicians work. And so somebody like Trump, who is, really is the ultimate Donald Trump impersonator, sort of has no other reality. Political writers just have the wrong skill set to come to grips with him, it is not part of a world they understand. They had no way of understanding that the apprentice was a prefiguration of how the Trump presidency works. It's sort of
0: a cliche that Trump runs the White House as if it were a reality TV show. But there's something to that, isn't there?
2: You know, one of the wonderful things in this book, Audience of One, by the uh, New York Times TV critic, James Paniwazak, is that, of course, he has watched The Apprentice, and he has watched a lot of reality TV. And like an awful lot of culture critics, he knows a lot more about politics than politicos do about pop culture, because for culture critics, politics is part of our beach. Um, we write about it as spectacle, and uh, as a disturbingly consequential form of entertainment, and we were doing that long before Trump came along to make our point for us. Everything about how the Trump White House operates was prefigured in The Apprentice. One reason Trump understood how to game the 2016 Republican primaries Was that, uh, you know, he looked around and saw 16 competitors and realized it might as well be another season of The Apprentice, you know, with himself as a contestant who understood how to play the game best. He treated those primaries as what Punnywasak calls a reality TV elimination show where, you know, you don't have to deal with substance. You deal with, you know, making impressions, belittling your rivals, and so on and so forth. And it's all about personality.
0: Well, moving back in time, before The Apprentice, most of the pundits say Trump was a real estate mogul who promoted his businesses in the media. But you say that idea has it backwards, that Trump was already engaged, you say, in conquering the society of the spectacle. Please explain how that worked in his earlier days as a New York real estate tycoon.
2: To a large extent, Trump wasn't a real estate tycoon so much as he, he was someone playing the part of a real estate tycoon. And what Trump was ultimately selling all along was the idea of Trump, Trump the brand. And of course, one of the ways he came back from his multiple bankruptcies to keep, him, keep the idea of Trump the brand alive was he used to pop up as a guest star on sitcoms and movies, and it was usually a trade-off where if they wanted to shoot on a Trump property, they had to include a cameo by Trump as usually as Donald Trump. I mean, he can't play anyone else. <laughs> and that kept him in the public eye until The Apprentice came along.
0: And TV looms large in Trump's early life, his childhood, his teen years. What, what do we know about that?
2: Well, one of, one of the conceits of the Paniwazic book is that Trump and TV were born in the, at the same time. In nineteen forty six, and that's not quite literally true, but it's close enough. And uh, the two most formative experiences of Trump's childhood were both things he experienced by watching them on TV. One of them was Queen Elizabeth's coronation, which was the first time a coronation or any ceremony of that type had been broadcast on TV. and his his father was disgusted with the whole thing. His mother was mesmerized. And uh, the other was pro wrestling on TV, which the uh, child Donald Trump apparently adored. And of course, it, it became part of his uh, adult life, too. Not just, you know, many sponsored WWE tournaments and things like that. But also, he took the lessons of pro wrestling to heart. Heroes and villains, bullying and braggadocio, and again, an act that ultimately depends on personality and not actual skill.
0: In your piece on the book by James Ponowazek, you write about Trump's first-ever appearance on national TV. I knew nothing about this.
2: No, no nor at I. It's another thing Ponowazek dug up. It was sometime in the 80s, and this was before the rise of cable and the rise of especially cable news. And in the days of the big three broadcast networks, The goal of TV was to be, you know, tranquilizing. One NBC executive came up with the phrase that the ideal thing to have on TV was what he called the least objectionable program, meaning the one least likely to make people change channels. And apparently in this early appearance, I mean, which I haven't seen going by Ponylotic's description of it, Trump is being interviewed on, I think, the, the Today Show and it's a Trump we wouldn't recognize today because he is being the least objectionable Donald Trump. You know, he's he's calm, he's reasonable, he's trying to be genial without being overbearing, and that was the Donald Trump, it made sense to him to play on TV at the time.
0: So we wonder how Trump realized it would work better to do the opposite of being calm and authoritative, to be outrageous and provocative. Was it, was it Fox News and Roger Ailes who opened this uh, Pandora's
2: box? Not really, although certainly Fox News played a part in transferring Trump to the political realm because when they, once The Apprentice was on the air, Fox and Friends started to do a segment called Mondays with Trump where he would phone in and uh, start talking about politics. This is something that really surprised me. Roger Ailes and Fox News, they hadn't gone near birtherism in Obama's case. They hadn't hadn't touched it with a 10-foot pole until Trump started spouting off about it on his regular appearances on Fox and Friends. And just because Trump was a celebrity, that gave them a sort of pseudo-legitimate reason to start treating birtherism as as legitimate news. And we all know how things spiraled from there.
0: Now, the confusing thing to me here is I can understand how cable news, and especially Fox, made Trump into this aggressive, polarizing, let us say, controversial figure, but Reality TV, The Apprentice, was not on cable. It was on network TV, which was supposed to be reassuring and and enjoyable. How did this transformation occur for Trump? The TV
2: landscape changed so much in the 90s and early 2000s. And, of course, reality TV was, it was something really new because instead of... Uh, giving us neatly scripted stories with happy endings where nothing ever really changed. People didn't change. Relationships didn't change. Certainly in sitcoms, no matter what the storyline was about, you knew at the end of the day, the family or the Mary Richards news team, they'd all still be pretty much the same people they had been at the start. And reality TV, it actually got at all the stuff about competitiveness and rancor and God knows, you know, race and class and greed that scripted TV left out because it was the law of the jungle. It basically told us life is a competition that only has one winner. And even if you're a horrible human being, that might actually be an advantage in winning a show like Survivor. That's one side of it. And on the other hand, the cable part of this is cable news. Which attracted a smaller audience than the old uh, broadcast news shows, but also a much more partisan and uh, potentially virulent one. So instead of you know the soothing voice of Walter Cronkite basically sending us to bed with the message that nothing too terrible for him to be able to reassure us about it had happened that day, cable news almost from the start, even before Roger Ailes. Uh, hyperbolized it. People understood that cable news was all about contentiousness and bickering and alarmism, just as the law of the jungle on reality TV was tailor-made for Trump. So the idea that cable news is all about partisan infighting and who can be the dominant personality, who can be the gorilla in the room, that suited Trump ideally too. So you have these two seemingly unrelated shifts in the nature of TV that actually merge in the figure of Trump.
0: Last question. You talked about how Fox and Friends pioneered this Mondays with Trump segment back in 2011. Of course, Fox and Friends is back in the news now. Remind us of its present status in the White House.
2: Well, uh, (laughs) um, as Trump's policy coordinator, I guess you could say, or uh, shadow cabinet, or... uh, Reassuring child psychiatrist, you can take your pick. What Pony Wazick says is it's Fox & Friends has become a morning children's show with an audience of one, the President of the United States. And the great twist Pony Wazick puts on that is it also fulfills every child's fantasy that his favorite TV show is as aware of him as he is aware of it. And that is the real symbiosis of Trump and Fox and Friends. I mean, it's eerie. Imagine people on a show like that who know that every day Trump will be tuning in and that he is their most important audience and that whatever gibberish they come up with that day, he will treat as gospel truth and act on it.
0: Tom Carson wrote about Trump and TV for the new issue of Book Forum. Thank you, Tom. This was great. Thank you very much, John. I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. We'll have more in a minute when Trump Watch continues. (laughs) It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Weiner, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. News from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, Ilhan Omar. Of course, she's the Somali Muslim immigrant woman who represents South Minneapolis in Congress. She just endorsed Bernie for president. For our report, we turn to David Perry. He's a historian and journalist whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Nation. We reached him today in Minneapolis. David Perry, welcome
3: to the program. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Since February, you have gone to almost every public appearance of hers in Minnesota. What have you learned from all that?
3: It's not that she isn't engaged with these hot-button issues, but when she puts her head down and just gets to work in the district she's not talking about herself versus trump she's not uh... sort of touting herself up she is uh... creating these events just event after event after event in which she brings a lot of people to the table. And whatever kind of spotlight is on her, she tries to put it on the other people, people who have things to say, people who have things to teach. And I just saw that again and again on, on environmentalism, on um, racial disparities in women's health, on Medicare for all, on black business owners and tech. I mean, big, big national issues and highly local issues. That's just her pattern.
0: Let's talk about that, that terrible day in July when Trump went after her at that rally of his in North Carolina, and the audience chanted, send her back, a really nightmarish, uh, 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 evil event. She flew back to Minneapolis after that. What happened there?
3: She flies home, and I get a Facebook message, not because I'm a journalist, but because I'm in touch with Minneapolis progressive communities saying, hey, uh, Congresswoman Omar's coming back. We're all going to meet at the baggage claim at the Minneapolis airport and welcome her home. And so I went out there and there were a couple hundred people cheering and chanting. And she grabbed a bullhorn and she, she did say some things about, uh, you know, that she did talk about Trump. And she said, you know, I'm not going to be intimidated and he's afraid of the kind of a, the movement that we're building and the values we represent. And then what was so interesting to me is that she, she was there with um, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. They were going to do a town hall, um, in on Medicare for all in, in a South Minneapolis, historically black neighborhood, um, In the Sabathany Community Center, this really interesting place in an interesting neighborhood, kind of the heart of South Minneapolis. And so, I and I got to say, a lot of other reporters. If you if you look, you'll see there were a lot of national stories filed that weekend by people who had just ducked into Minneapolis and then ducked out again. She gets on stage. There's this crowded room. There's almost no dissent. You you see reporters were crawling the room trying to find. You know, both sides naysayers they are just not there. There's no protest there. There's just a community of people riled up ready to support her. And she spent the next two hours carefully passing off the microphone to a very well, carefully assembled uh, panel of experts to talk about the details of getting us to Medicare for all. So I think that really is a, just a telling moment in who she is as a politician. Yes, yeah, she spoke about Trump at the airport. And yes, she, she did say maybe 25, 30 seconds at the very beginning of the event saying, yes, I know there's this terrible thing. Thanks for everyone's support. But she wants to get back to work. And that's the group of people she assembled. And that's really what we did. And I think a CNN report called it kind of boring. <laughs> and um. Boring. You know, sometimes the details are boring, and the work of politics is boring, and she she was doing the work. Uh, you say you've never seen
0: a politician talk so little at town halls. Tell us about that.
3: You know, usually politicians want the spotlight, right? They want, yeah. They want people to pay attention to them, their message, their words. If they're inspiring you, they want to inspire you to be focused on them. That's part of what political charismatic leadership does. I, I don't have one of those clocks like... You know, CNN or The New York Times uses to count minutes at debates. But I am pretty sure that at every event I've been to, Ilhan Omar has not only spoken the least, but dramatically the least. Hmm. She gives her introduction. She has her panelists speak. And then she asks them questions. And they're prepared questions. They're they're questions that are calculated, like you, a good interviewer, to Hmm. draw out the best of the person who she's put up on this stage. And then she says thank you and everyone cheers and she leaves. And and that's re- and sometimes in the Q&A she gets back into it a little bit. But she's really here to make sure that the people who want to listen to her also listen to the people that she listens to.
0: Let's talk about her relationship with the Jewish voters, some, many of whom are in her district and some of whom are in the neighboring uh, district. Tell us about what she did there After those charges that she was anti Semitic, and after Trump tweeted she hates Israel, she hates all Jews.
3: Yeah, so this was, I thought, in some ways the most interesting part of our conversation, in which she told me for a while about how she tries to avoid community gatekeepers, how she's interested in locating people who might not otherwise be heard, and that's part of her strategy. And I really do think that backfired on her a little bit when she took office and started talking about Israel without really feeling that she needed to spend a lot of time consulting with local Jewish leaders and kind of having them explain to her how their constituency sees the world so that she can not not weigh in on an issue she thinks is very important in terms of of palestinian rights but that she can do so in a way that doesn't create unnecessary divides between her and people who might otherwise support her the jewish community in minneapolis and the suburbs um... she she represents St. Louis Park, which is a big Jewish community, and then her neighboring district is represented by a, a Jewish politician, Dean Phillips. Um, and again, lots of Jewish constituents there. And just so everyone knows, I'm also Jewish, um, so I'm, I'm sort of from a secular Jewish background, uh, progressive in lots of ways, and that's pretty typical. These are people who want to support Palestinian rights, but who also want to make sure that Jewishness is not under attack. Um, So after that that moment in February, she called lots of local Jewish leaders from within her district. There's a very progressive uh, synagogue in South Minneapolis that at least one of the rabbis there um, was involved, put together a call, and has in general, my sense, tried to stay more in touch with those particular voices, because she realizes that everything she says about Israel is going to quickly be run through a filter and interpreted, not just by Trump, but by um, a lot of Jewish journalists um, who who are looking for this kind of narrative, interpreted in the worst possible light. And I think she has continued to make some mistakes around that, but also I think, um, you know, the, the, anytime she talks about Israel, anytime she talks about Palestine, uh, there's going to be a temptation on certain groups to interpret her in this way. So she's had to shore up, kind of intentionally shore up uh, her connections to local Jewish leaders.
0: And let's talk for a minute about her relationship with Dean Phillips, the congressman you mentioned who represents one district over, also a first-term congressman. He's Jewish. He's also not a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, but he has worked with her privately and supported her uh, publicly. Talk about her relationship with Dean Phillips.
3: You know, that's not something that I have sort of from her mouth, what, or I haven't talked to him either about what, they've, what, they, what they say about each other, but I've read the public statements. You know, again, after the all about the Benjamin comment for which Omar apologized, Phillips put out a statement saying, I'm glad she apologized. That was a mistake. You know, we're in good dialogue about it. And then flash forward to August, when Israel denies her a visa and Phillips puts out a statement in support of Omar and in support of, of her sort of her focus on human rights in that region of the world. So I think, I think that's very telling. Um, there, is, there is an assumption that Jewish voters in this region, or at least slightly more conservative ones, may be turned to, off by her. I guess I'm just not seeing that. I, I could go to every synagogue in town and talk to them about Ilhan Omar, and I might get some different narratives. But the people at her event, the public figures, the leaders here, you know, who are, who are within the 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 left-to-center-left kind of sphere anyway, they just have not... They They are glad she apologized. They agree that she made some mistakes early on, and they're standing with her.
0: And her district, I know, is overwhelmingly Democratic. There's no chance that a Republican is ever going to defeat her. But what about Dean Phillips? This had been a Republican district. Is he getting any heat for supporting
3: her? I have not seen any heat on that. There are two people who have announced they're running against him for the Republican nomination. Um, I looked at all their campaign materials. There's not a mention of Ilhan Omar in anything that I've seen that could change. There was, in April, an attempt to kind of use Omar as a wedge issue. The Norm Coleman, the former senator and mayor of St. Paul, led a group doing a, putting a couple hundred thousand dollars in digital ads in the region um, really focusing on Omar um, and targeting people like Phillips. But that seems to have died down. So I guess we kind of have to wait and see. We're still over a year away from the, the election. Um, we don't know who the, Democrat, who the Republican candidate will be. My feeling is that the, the people who have declared so far are not The major contenders for that seat, but we'll see. It's definitely the kind of swing seat um, that will be important for control of the House in uh, 2020. So we'll just have to see.
0: Ilhan Omar has faced more intense attacks than Just about anyone else in politics, and she's only been in Congress for a year, we know she gets a lot of death threats. She's had the crowd chanting, send her back. The Alabama GOP voted to expel her from Congress. She's just at the beginning of her congressional career. How does she handle the pressure?
3: Well, she tells me, and she tells other people too, that she is totally fine, Um, that she has been through worse that she, you know her her life experience coming as a refugee, um, and then as a you know moving through multiple stages before reaching home here, um, as a as a you know her own experience trying to move through education and having kids and, and and those difficult times I think that many of us have dealing with debt and trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives, you know that that sort of these words just aren't bothering her and that these attacks aren't bothering her. She told me in a very really kind of hilarious part of our conversation that. within within the Somali community, there's a lot of banter, sort of insult-related banter, so that all nicknames are kind of insulting, but friendly insults So hers' is half-life because she's tiny. She just says she has a very thick skin. But she also is very clear that what worries her is not the... I mean, she's obviously taking care with her security. She has security detail. Her security is present at all of her events and on the street with her as she's moving. Um, So it's not that she's oblivious to the risks, but what seems to bother her emotionally is not the attacks on her but the ways that attacks on her may affect other people who identify with her other people who are um... in particular i think you know muslim immigrants women um, anyone wearing a hijab anyone who is muslim anyone who is who is um, african or african-american That the way that the attacks on her try to assert her status as other as not belonging here as someone who should be sent back It doesn't bother her, but it bothers her that other people may feel it, too, or that there could be, you know, even in Minneapolis, uh, another Somali school kid who is bullied by uh, people shouting, send her back to a kid. That that is the kind of thing that bothers her.
0: She has endorsed Bernie for president and her endorsement video tweet right now has something like 1.2 million views that suggests something about her significance today, I think.
3: I think that if you're interested in progressive politics, from whether you are a progressive or whether you're someone who hates progressive politics or or whatever, that she is one of the people who's going to be just a powerful figure in American progressive politics as long as she wants to be. Uh, She has this seat as long as she wants it. I don't know how long she wants it, I don't know what her long-term plans are, I don't think she may know. But she has the ability, uh, along with, in particular, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to command a certain kind of attention from a big chunk of the left. And so we need to pay attention to, to her. I don't want people to just get the sense of her as this national polarizing figure with these big tweets, because again... When I see her in the district, she's just doing a kind of really focused, constituent, issue-oriented work. Um, And that is what her politics seem to be all about.
0: David, Perry's report on Ilhan Omar appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, David. This was great. So
3: nice to talk to you.
0: And we have a political update On Monday, October 28th, the House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly to recognize the mass killing of Armenians by the Turkish government in 1915 and 1916 as a genocide. Armenian Americans have been pushing for this at least since 1984. It was shocking that 11 Republicans voted against the measure and two Democrats refused to vote yes. Instead, they voted present, one of them was Ilhan Omar. As David Perry reported at TheNation.com on Thursday, her explanation seems to be that you should acknowledge all genocides and human rights abuses, not just one. As David says, that's a laudable principle, but her vote undermines her own political work, as well as the broader progressive goals she champions. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Our show is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, with additional engineering from William Broughton. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. And thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed any part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week. With more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting, I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.